We're going to open our show today with a look back at a famous black entertainer whose career was ruined and her legacy pretty much erased from history after she stood up to the House Un-American Committee. That was a tune called Black and White Are Beautiful, played by Hazel Scott, the African-American piano prodigy and jazz great. Scott was playing on two grand pianos at once. I'm going to read you lightly edited excerpts from a review by Larissa Reinhart, published February 22, 2023, in the online journal Narratively. The essay is titled, She Was Once the Biggest Star in Jazz. Here's why you've never heard of her. Reinhardt is writing about Hazel Scott. Her biographical essay on the jazz musician and civil rights activist is based on two books. The first is Hazel Scott, The Pioneering Journey of a Jazz Pianist from Cafe Society to Hollywood to HUAC by Karen Chilton. The second is Cafe Society, The Wrong Place for the Right People by Barney Josephson with Terry Trilling Josephson. Here's the story. On a rainy September morning in 1950, jazz pianist Hazel Scott stood in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee, hoping to clear her name. The publication Red Channels had accused Scott, along with 150 other cultural figures, of communist sympathies. Failure to respond would be seen as an admission of guilt, but her appearance at HUAC had a greater purpose than personal exoneration. She believed she had a responsibility to stem the tide of paranoia that gained momentum by the day. She told the committee's members, quote, Mudslinging and unverified charges are just the wrong ways to handle this problem. With the same poise she brought to the stage of as a musician, she warned against, quote, profiteers in patriotism who seek easy money and notoriety at the expense of the nation's security and peace of mind, and that continuing down this road would transform America's artists from a, quote, loyal troop of patriotic, energetic citizens ready to give their all for America into a wronged group whose creative value has been destroyed. Speaking with a voice that simultaneously conveyed clarity and nuance, strength and warmth, she knew what she was doing. She had been rehearsing for this moment her entire life. Born in Trinidad, Scott was raised on music. Her whole family played, and her mother taught music to make ends meet. Unbeknownst to her family, Hazel Scott absorbed everything she heard until one day she woke her grandmother from a nap by playing a familiar hymn on the piano two-handed, and with perfect pitch. Her grandmother thought, not wrongly, that she was witnessing a miracle. Scott's arc was fixed in the stars from that moment on. At three years old, Scott played parties, churches, and gatherings, but economic opportunity was hard to come by, and when her parents' marriage fell apart in 1923, her mother decided to emigrate to New York City. 
Scott, the child, grocery shop, prepared meals, and handled the household's money. When word got around that a child was paying the bills, a gang of white teenagers broke in and demanded money. Scott refused. They beat her black and blue, and Scott still refused to turn over the cash. Finally, as police sirens grew nearer, the boys ran off. Another time, Hazel was playing near the trench being dug for the subway line that would become the A-train. A white girl from the neighborhood told her to turn around so she could brush her off and send her to school. When she did, the girl pushed her into the trench. Scott resolved never to be so naive again, nor did she allow the incident to dictate her life. She kept playing piano, kept stunning audiences, and impressed one person in particular. German-born, wearing a meticulous goatee and a pocket watch, and steeped in the traditions of European classical music, Juilliard founder Frank Damroche was the very model of high culture in New York City. His blood began to boil when he heard someone in the audition room improvising over Rachmaninoff's prelude in C-sharp major. Marching down the hall to confront the blasphemer brash enough to attempt such a thing, he heard the ninths being substituted with the sixths, a sacrilege, he thought, until he saw who was playing. Since eight-year-old Scott's hands couldn't reach the piece's intervals, she played the sixths to make it sound the way she intuitively knew it should. No one taught her how to do this. Scott wrote in her journal, I was only reaching for the closest thing that sounded like it, not even knowing what a sixth was at that age. Scott was admitted to Juilliard, but her real education wasn't in the classroom. It was in her living room. Here's Hazel Scott playing A Foggy Day. Hazel's mother, Alma, bought a brownstone, opened a Chinese restaurant on the ground floor, and taught herself to play tenor sax. Lester Young and Billie Holiday came over after hours. Holiday became like a big sister to Hazel, taking her under her wing, as Hazel ventured out into the life of a working musician. 
At 13, Hazel joined her mother's jazz band and later played with the Count Basie Orchestra at the posh Roseland Ballroom, where she played what will become her signature boogie-woogie style. The crowd adored her. From there, she took flight. At the time, the majority of jazz clubs were segregated. Even the famed Cotton Club in Harlem, where Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway headlined, had a colored section. Blacks and whites almost never shared the stage. But in 1938, a shoe clerk from Trenton, New Jersey, opened a different kind of club. Cafe Society was, quote, the wrong place for the right people, according to founder Barney Josephson. As Josephson recounted in his autobiography, I wanted a club where blacks and whites worked together behind the footlights and sat together out front. It was there that Holiday performed Strange Fruit for the first time, and it was there that Holiday got Scott her first steady engagement. As it turned out, not only was Scott a brilliant pianist, she also had a hell of a voice, deep and sonorous, comforting yet provocative, the sort of singing style that makes you want to embrace the sublime melancholy that is love and life and whiskey on a midwinter's night. And she was beautiful. She wore floor-length ball gowns on stage and gazed out into the audience with almond-shaped eyes. When Scott sang, you saw the song traveling through her, taking shape before emerging from her lips. And when she played her boogie-woogie, she grinned ear to ear, looking like self-possessed joy manifested. She was, in a word, irresistible. And here she is playing Hazel's Boogie Woogie. You are listening to KBOO Portland. I'm Patricia Kohlberg here with the Old Mole Variety Hour. Before we continue with the story of Hazel Scott, I want to remind you that it's our All Thrills, No Frills winter campaign to raise $17,000 to keep community radio alive in Portland. If you can help us out today with a donation, please text KBOO to 44321 or go to kboo.fm and click on the Donate button, or send us a check at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland, 97214. Audiences flocked to see Hazel Scott. Fan mail flooded in. Josephson decided to open a second Cafe Society location uptown for a swankier audience, with Scott as the marquee performer. New York's finest showed up in droves, including First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Scott was the reigning queen of jazz, a friend to some of the most famous names in the country, and all at just 22 years old. Hazel Scott had conquered New York. Hollywood was next. But in a motion picture industry where people of color were usually restricted to playing maids, cannibals, or buffoons, was there room for Hazel Scott? 
Nine black soldiers march down a hill to the sound of piano and drum. They are upright, dignified, and ready to fight and die. Their sweethearts line the road, waving handkerchiefs and bidding their fellows goodbye. The scene is from The Heat's On, a patriotic 1943 musical. Scott is performing a rah-rah number called The Quezons Go Rolling Along. In conceptualizing the scene, the director intended to dress the women in what Hollywood assumed all black women would wear, dirty aprons. Scott wasn't having it. Her contract always included final script and wardrobe approval, ensuring she'd never play or look the fool. She told the choreographer she wanted that protection extended to the extras who shared her stage. What do you care, said the choreographer. You're beautifully dressed. The next thing I knew, wrote Scott in her journal, we were screaming at each other. I insisted that no scene in which I was involved would display black women wearing dirty aprons to send their men to die for their country. Scott went on strike. For three days, the studio begged and pleaded for her to return, but Scott would not be moved. The more the clock ticked, the more money it cost, a fact of which Scott was well aware. Finally, the studio caved to Scott's demands. Though she won the battle, Columbia Pictures was far from conceding the war. In the minds of producers who were used to dictating to African Americans, particularly women, Scott's public victory was more than they could stand. In the next two years, she was given small parts in two more second-rate movies. After that, she was finished with the motion pictures. Here's a little more from Hazel Scott singing the beloved French classic, Autumn Leaves. Que tu te souviens Les jours heureux Quand nous étions amis En ce temps-là La vie était plus belle Le soleil plus brûlant qu'aujourd'hui Les feuilles Hazel Scott packed her bags and headed back east, where love was about to sweep her off her feet. Scott was once again wowing crowds at Cafe Society when she caught the eye of a young politician, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., soon to become New York's first African-American congressman, pulled Josephson aside and asked for an introduction. Are you really interested in Hazel, said Josephson, who considered Scott a daughter, or are you just screwing around? Powell assured him of his sincerity. Josephson made the introduction, and their romance caught fire, despite the fact that Powell had been married to nightclub singer Isabel Washington. For the next year, Scott and Powell pursued their love with reckless abandon. In 1945, he married Scott shortly after his divorce was finalized. Her career in Hollywood dead, Scott started touring, winning rave reviews at concerts across the country and fighting discrimination throughout. In November 1948, the Washington Post reported that she refused to play a sold-out show at the University of Texas because the audience was segregated, despite the anti-Jim Crow clause in her contract, which allowed her to cancel the booking without forfeiting her pay. 
Scott was making around $75,000 a year, according to Life magazine, making her one of the most successful musicians in the country, black or white. Hollywood could no longer ignore her. In 1950, she came to break the color barrier on the small screen. Scott sits at the keys of a grand piano in an elegant white gown. With a backdrop of Manhattan behind her, she looks like the urban empress she had become. Broadcast on the Dumont Network, the Hazel Scott Show was the first television program to have an African-American woman as its solo host. Three nights a week, Scott played her signature mix of boogie-woogie, classics, and jazz standards in living rooms across America. As a passionate civil and women's rights activist, the show symbolized a triumphant accomplishment. As a career musician, her program took her to professional heights known by few, assuring her place in the pantheon of America's greatest performers. And then, just like that, it all came tumbling down. When she stood in front of HUAC, it only made sense to stand up for what she believed in. In an unwavering voice, she told the committee, The entertainment profession has done its part for America in war and peace, and it must not be dragged through the mud of hysterical name-calling at a moment when we need to enrich and project the American way of life to the world. But they did not hear her, did not believe her, and she, in turn, underestimated the power of fear, never having bent to it herself. One week after her testimony, Dumont canceled the Hazel Scott show. Concert appearances became few and far between. Even nightclub gigs were hard to come by. Exhausted and unraveled, Scott went to Paris on what was to be a three-week vacation. Her sojourn extended to three years. To her, Paris became, quote, a much-needed rest, not from work, but from racial tension. She played across Europe and in North Africa and in the Middle East. Crowds still loved her, still swooned over her swinging classics. But it was not the same. Her spotlight had dimmed and would never again shine on her the way it had in her halcyon days. Eventually, Scott returned to America and slipped further into obscurity. In 1981, she passed away at 61 from cancer. Her albums are hard to come by now, and her name never appears where it should, beside Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, and Louis Armstrong, and others. But for a while, she led them all, until a country, twisted by fear, pushed her past the point from which even she, the force of nature that she was, could return.
That was Hazel Scott playing Taking a Chance. Before that, I was reading excerpts from a biographical essay by Larissa Reinhart, published February 22, 2023, in the online journal Narratively, entitled She Was Once the Biggest Star in Jazz. Here's why you've never heard of her. A link to the full essay will be posted on the webpage for today's show at kboo.fm.